Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we're going to continue in our study through the book of 1 Samuel. A cool section of text today, we're going to look at Jonathan and his faith and the implications of his faith and um, in our lives, how we can, we can model the same faith. As you're making your way there, just uh, by way of introduction, tell you a brief story. If, if you remember your history during uh, the battle, or the, well, it was the Battle of the Blitz, it was, it was when the Germans were, were uh, attacking uh, England. And uh, it was, let me see if I can remember my history <laughs> correctly, it was September of 1941, uh, or September of 1940 through like May of 41, something like that, don't quote me on it, but basically they, they were attacking um, uh, England, and they were just launched a, a severe aerial campaign it's known as the Blitz. And, um, and so as they were attacking England, man, there was just a, a ton of destruction that was being brought on the city and lots of civilian casualties. We're talking maybe 40,000 uh, civilians killed uh, by this aerial bombing. So you can imagine as a civilian in the city of London, for instance, it was just one of several cities that they attacked, um, it was a frightening time. And the story is told there of a, of a young boy and his father. And his father was trying to desperately just to, to bring his son uh, somewhere to safety. And uh, the, the bomber's literally overhead. And they're running away from their apartment complex, which is now fully engulfed in flames. And bombs are still falling. And the father sees a, a crater of a, of a, uh, that was created by a bomb that had previously exploded. And so what he did was he, he ran for the crater and he said, son, we're going to get in here. And he jumped into the crater. It was, you know... Very deep, he jumped in and uh, he cried out to his son, jump, jump. And his son, standing at the edge of this bomb crater, looking into the, all he could see was blackness, just a dark hole. He couldn't see his father, he could just hear his voice. His father telling him, son, jump, I'll catch you. And the boy said, daddy, I can't see you. And as he's standing there looking in, daddy, I can't see you, he's terrified, scared to death. <clears throat> and the dad looks up at him and and. Here, the son is completely silhouetted by the burning building behind him. The dad can see him perfectly. And he said, son, I can see you. That's all that counts. That's all that matters. Jump, I'll catch you. And of course, the son, by faith, he did jump into that hole. And uh, they were safe there in that bomb crater from, from the, the following bombs. And the big idea of 1 Samuel chapter 14 is this idea of going on a venture of faith with God. God has called us to a walk of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Much to our chagrin, right? We like to walk by sight because we're, we're physical beings living in a physical world and, and it's so much more convenient when we can walk by sight. And everything in me wants to engineer my life so that I can walk by sight. But God says in his word that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so our calling is to walk by faith, not by sight. And so this is the idea of 1 Samuel 14 is you've got Jonathan who's going to take an incredible venture of faith. Not walking by sight, not walking by what seems right to him, but he's walking according uh, to faith. Um, and, uh, and here we see a little twist on, on our story. My introductory story, it was the father who was exhorting the son to have faith. But really here in our, in our text, what we're going to see is it's the son who has faith. It's the father who lacks faith, doesn't, doesn't really have uh, any faith. We'll, we'll start it off in chapter 14. I'm going to back up because I, I left in the middle of chapter 13 last week. So I'm going I'm to start with the first couple of verses in, verse, in chapter 14 and then we'll, we'll go backwards and then we'll go forwards. Um, So, chapter 14, verse 1, now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. By the way, it happened one day. Just take note of that. It's not in my notes. I just want to throw it out there that when God calls us to radical ventures of faith, it just, they, they, they start looking like any other day. I, that just jumps out to me. It's just something that, that, I, that I feel impressed upon just to say, just to mention. That, that, you know, the day starts out just like any other day. 
but it can have just radical implications if we will choose to obey the Lord and walk by faith. And so he says, come, let us go over to the other side, um, to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And verse 2, Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about... 600 men. You'll remember last week that there was, there were several thousand men that they had, had kept. Both, you know, he kept a couple of thousand for himself. Saul did. He gave a thousand of the men, uh, to Jonathan. He had all the rest of the guys go home. And then, you know, as the enemy was amassing, the forces amassing against them, and they were so vast, vastly outnumbered that slowly everybody was slipping away, hiding in holes and so on, and they're just, they're afraid. So the, the forces have dwindled now to about 600 men. Now it says here in our text that uh, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's do this, but he didn't tell his father. Why didn't he tell his father? Well, we left off with Samuel informing Saul that the kingdom was going to be taken from him. Saul has been leading the nation now for all about two years. And uh, things started off good for Saul after he successfully repelled the attack of the Ammonites. Um, But following that initial victory, Saul became complacent. Uh, His complacency led to compromise. His compromise led to excuses. And it culminated uh, in Samuel's rebuke in uh, verse 14 of chapter 3 where he says, look, now your your kingdom is not going to continue because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you uh, to do. Um, God had been very clear to Saul on the day of his coronation back in chapter 12, verse 24, where he, he told him, look, you're to fear God, you're to serve him in truth with all your heart, and you're to remember his faithfulness. Do that, Saul, and you'll be successful. Well, Saul failed to do that. And because he didn't do that, eventually his son Jonathan got, set up, got fed up with sitting around and the enemies, you know, being all around them. Jonathan's attitude was, hey, this is our land. God's given it to us. He's called us to conquer, and we're just sitting here. For crying out loud, let's get to it. And so if you remember, Jonathan back in in chapter 13, uh, he launched an attack, and the attack was, was successful. They were victorious, and what did Saul do? Well, he didn't contribute really anything to the attack, but when everybody started propagating that Saul had had defeated the enemy, Saul took the credit. He's like, yes, I did. Well, no, as I recall, Saul, you were doing nothing. It was your son who had the faith. It was your son who took the initiative. You really didn't do anything, but Saul was, was more than happy to take all of the credit for the, the victory there. Um, but the truth was Saul was complacent. Saul was indecisive, and worst of all, he lacked faith. And that's really the big idea of this chapter. The idea is faith. Saul's, you know, very much a man who goes on appearances. He goes on, you know, what he can see and, and all. And, and we, we understand that to a certain degree based on, on his physical stature. I mean, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was more handsome than anybody else in all the land. And so certainly in his life, Saul had enjoyed a fair measure of uh, success based on his physical attributes, And so it it only stands to reason that Saul's approach to trouble in his life was, you know, based on what he could see and what he could engineer and what he himself could do because his physical attributes had benefited him so, so, you know, that way thus far. Which, again, not in my notes, but something for us to consider. Sometimes, you know, when you have a lot going for you physically... Sometimes it's hard to trust in the Lord and to walk according to faith and to walk according to, you know, the things of the Spirit because we're sort of used to engineering it ourselves or, or maybe you're used to sort of, you know, being able to, to get your, your way. I mean, scientific studies have shown that, that you know, good-looking people, uh, I wouldn't know this by experience, but good-looking people... <laughs> Get, get favor. Have you seen those studies? There's been actually, you know, you'll have a news crew go out and they have two people go into a job interview and one of them's, you know, good looking and one of them's not. And, um, and inevitably, the good looking one gets the favor and so on. So, you know, this is probably the situation uh, with Saul and that he enjoys uh, these things. But uh, Samuel, he, he basically goes to Saul and he says, look, you're out. You're done. You're all done here. 
And uh, so the kingdom's going to be taken away from you. Now, it's a little confusing here because it doesn't happen right away. It's confusing in that we see that God has told Saul through Samuel, look, I'm done. I'm taking my hands off you. I'm going to find somebody whose heart is after me, a man after my own heart. Clearly, he's talking about David. And we pointed out last week, David hadn't even been born yet, which is is significant. It just speaks to God's... uh, his sovereign uh, ability, the, the idea of God's sovereign uh, providential will, um, and just a, a big thing to consider, you know, we living in, in the space-time continuum, God living outside of space and time, how, you know, he can have his perfect will, and yet he can give us free will, and somehow his perfect sovereign will is, is what works through. J. Vernon McGee said that uh, God's uh, sovereign providence is kind of, it's, it's when the, the hand of God is in the glove of human events. Uh, and so just this, this amazing thing, and so God says to Saul, look, I'm done with you, but he doesn't take him out right away. In fact, Saul, as we're going to see, is going to remain in power for well over 20 years, uh, from the time that Samuel said, you're done, you're out. Now, does that make God a liar? No, what that makes God is a very gracious God. See, there's the, you've you got to know that, that God, even though he has said this to Saul, had Saul repented, had Saul chosen to live his life in, in a surrendered will to God, to be able to say, I'm going to trust you by faith. I'm not going to try and engineer things on my own. I'm not going to, you know, live a life that basically, you know, ignores you. Had he repented, certainly God would have been gracious to Saul. And so the fact that we're going to read now for several chapters, Saul still being in that place, it needs to be a recurring message and a recurring reminder to us of the grace of God. That God is, is, you know, slow to anger. He's abounding in, in, in mercy. And so if you, maybe you're in a position where, you know, God, just like he's done with Saul, he gives him time. And maybe you're in a season right now where God's giving you time. Something to think about, something to take a walk with. It, you know, am I like Saul in a place where perhaps God would say to me, or maybe God has said to me, look, I'm all done with you. But it's not too late to repent. Maybe today, maybe you would decide today, Lord, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this to be the final word in my life. I don't want to have you tell me that's it, there's no more, and, and, and that's all, and we're all done, and then just continue in a way. But Lord, no, I don't want to do that. I want to repent. Maybe that's you. And today I would just tell you that you can't. That you can just humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and cry out to him. Well, Saul doesn't do this. Samuel, you know, shows up and basically says, look, you're out. Uh, Saul, you know, hardens his heart. And now chapter 13, verse 16, where we left off last week, says, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped, (coughs) excuse me, in Michmash. And then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road uh, to, to Oprah. Uh, I don't know why you would go to, down to see Oprah, but there you go. Um, uh, to the land of, of uh, Shual. Another company turned to the road uh, to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road uh, of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim. Uh, toward the wilderness. Um, here's what's going on. When you have a vast army, uh, one of the things you have to think about logistically is how you're going to provide for that army. In fact, how are you going to feed them? How are you going to clothe them? How are you going to you know, get them the, the sustenance that they need? And so what would happen is as these armies would go forth and as they would invade, uh, they, would, they would go in and they would subjugate the people. And so uh, they, what they're doing here is they're going in and they're establishing all of these places to where they can go now to the Israelites and say, we need food and guess where we're getting it from? We're getting it from you. We need water. We're getting it from you. Uh, and so this is, this is what's going on here as we read. They're, they're going in to subjugate the people and provide uh, for their, for their uh, provision. Now, verse 19, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, 
let the Hebrews make swords, uh, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So they didn't want to allow them the opportunity to manufacture weapons such that they could fight back against them. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to take their weapons uh, away from them. This is something that is, you know, goes throughout uh, the years, throughout history. You see that uh, people, you know, when, when they want to uh, rule over, one of the things they'll do is they'll take away their ability um, to make war. This is why our founding fathers in the establishing of the Constitution put in there the right to keep and bear arms. Why? It, wasn't, it, was, it was for one specific purpose. It was so that the, the people would not have a, 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 the, the tyranny of a government that would subjugate them. They wanted us to be a free people, and so the right of the, of the public to keep and bear arms was such that, hey, our government couldn't subjugate us. And so that we could remain free and independent, <clears throat> a nation of the people, by the people, for the people. That's why our, our uh, nation was established that way. And so this is what they're doing. They're saying, hey, look, we, we don't want them to be able to manufacture arms, so, uh, so no blacksmith is going to be allowed there in Israel, and then if they, they want anything that's, that's done, anything that's sharpened, and their farming tools and so on, and they're going to go on to talk about this, they're going to have to come to us to do it. Verse 20, and this is where it says that, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle, that the, and the charge for <clears throat> a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axe, uh, axes and to set the points of the goads. And so, and that's just basically to tell us that they didn't, they're, they're painting the picture here that not only were they vastly outnumbered numerically, but they were also vastly underweaponed. And it says in verse 22 so it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, <clears throat> but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And so it's incumbent upon Saul and Jonathan, both as leaders of the people, that they are to be at the front of the charge, that they, with the weapons, are to be utilizing those weapons to initiate the attack, and the men coming behind them would be using, you know, their whatever else they could get, their plowshares and their axes and so on, that would be their weapons for, for warfare. Verse 23, and the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the, pack, to the pass of Michmash. Um, now, the problem here that's going on is that the enemy is in the land and he's attacking the people at will. He's subjugating the people. And, and only Saul and Jonathan are equipped to fight, but Saul won't fight. Saul is, is hiding under a pomegranate tree. He's sitting, doing nothing under a pomegranate tree. And so here, you know, as we, as we read in chapter 14, that Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go up against them. But he didn't tell his father. The reason he didn't tell his father is because his father would try to talk him out of it. His father has abdicated his responsibility as the king and as the leader of the people. He should be the one standing up saying, this is not right. We're not going to put up with this. We are going to fight against the enemy. And in very like terms, you fathers, you husbands, called to be the head of our homes, we're the ones who are to stand up and not allow the enemy to subjugate us or to subjugate our family. We're the ones that need to take the initiative when we see the enemy advancing, when we see the enemy making inroads, the last place on earth that we need to be is sitting under a pomegranate tree. Or to put it in context, to be sitting in front of the television watching football. Now, there's nothing wrong with sitting in front of the television and watching football unless you're watching your precious USC Trojans get their butts kicked. That's just a crime. But, but there's nothing wrong with that. Here's when there's something wrong with that. I just want to be very clear. When something's wrong with that is when that you're characterized by that. When you're characterized by your kids not being able to talk to you, you're, they're characterized by, you know, the, your whole family walking on eggshells around you. If your team wins, then you're going to be in a good mood. If your team doesn't win, you're going to be in a bad mood. And, and, and basically, it's all about, this is me, this is my world, this is my sports, this is my, all of my stuff. No, you, you're called to be a leader. And so, so 
Saul or Sam, Jonathan here is seeing Saul sit around, and he, he's 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 had enough. He's like, look, we're sitting when we ought to be fighting. And so Jonathan takes the initiative. Now, chapter 14, we left off verse 3. It tells us Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, that's a mouthful. And why so much information here? Well, basically, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff to see here. We see that it's... Um, you know, the son of, of uh, Phineas, the son of Eli, well, we already know that he's out. We already know that he was wicked, and we already know that his line was cut off from being leaders. So this, this, is, this, this uh, uh, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, the, this son of, of, you know, he's Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli. So we already know his family is out as far as the priestly line. So you have a guy operating in a, in a role and in a responsibility that, 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 that God is not going to bless, that not, God's not going to honor. Not only that, but, you know, it makes the point of telling us that uh, he's, um, the, uh, um, he's uh, Ichabod's brother, now, now, again, more information, why do we need that? Well, I think the, the Lord's just making the point, because Ichabod means that the glory has departed. That's what the name means. The glory has departed. And, and I think that this is just God's way of saying that, uh, you know, here's a kingdom, and here's their, you know, their, their trappings of spirituality, but really, it's lacking the glory of the Lord, is what you're seeing. And, there, and, and verse 3 is just pointing out to us that, if they had really been in tune with the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God is the one who is moving upon Jonathan's heart to say, go and attack the enemy. And if they had been in, in concert, in harmony with the Spirit of God, then, then what would have happened? They would not have known that, that the men had, they wouldn't have been unaware that the men had gone, but rather they would be hearing from the same God. It would have been a matter of, hey, this is what needs to be happening. But apparently at this point, Jonathan's the only one who's listening to the Lord. And, uh, and so, verse 4, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. And, and so what, what's going on here, verse 6, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, uh, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving uh, by many or by few. You might want to just underline that last section. Nothing restrains the Lord. By many or by few. This, this, I think, would be the theme of verse 14, the, or of chapter 14. The whole, the whole idea is, look, it, God doesn't count up the sides and say, oh, wow, you're outnumbered and you're outgunned, and so you're out of luck. You know, God doesn't operate like that. If you're in the will of God, you and God make a majority. You know, God, and, God alone makes the majority. You know what I mean? So it's like, if, if you're following after the Lord, if you're trusting in the Lord, hey, listen, it, the numbers don't matter. The stats don't matter. It just, it just doesn't, doesn't make uh, a difference. Now, I, I've, I've jotted down just a few simple points as it pertains to taking a venture of faith. That's really the big idea of this chapter. And so uh, I'm just going to go through them. Uh, and, uh, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But as we go through here, just some things that, that stood out to me, i just share with you. And my first point, if you want to write it down, we must decide if we will be a person who sits around or if we'll be a person who will venture out in faith. Listen, as a follower of God, you have to make a decision. Are you going to be someone that just sits around? Or you're going to be somebody who's characterized by taking a venture of faith, stepping out in faith, following after the Lord. It's been said your life is God's gift to you, but what you do with it is your gift back to Him. Your life is, what, is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to Him. 
I'll, I'll illustrate this with a story. In, in, my, in my first years of ministry, um, I, was, I was called to do a funeral. And, um, you know, sometimes when, and I've just been doing this from the very beginning, when I first became a pastor, sometimes when pastors do funerals, they really um, don't always have the benefit of knowing the person who's passed away. And a lot of times what the, the funeral uh, services will do, funeral homes will do, is they'll just have basic biographical information that they give you on a card. And, and a lot of pastors will just come. They, they've really never met the family. They, they, never, they didn't know the decedent. And, uh, and they just kind of show up and they have, you know, their canned prayers that they do. And any personal information, they read off a little card that they've been given, you know. And, you know, Margaret uh, was born this date and she had this education, whatever. I mean, they could have just read it like the obituary in the newspaper. Totally impersonal. So what I want to do, you know, is I want it to be a little bit more personal. So what I've always done is I'll, I'll go and meet with a family. And, uh, and I do this whether I knew the person or whether I didn't know the person. But obviously it's very important if I didn't know the person, I want to get this information. So I'll go, sit down, write it out. Hey, tell me about your mom. Tell me about your dad, your brother, whoever it is. And, and, I just, and then as I'm sharing in the time of sharing, I'll... Because um, I'm, I'm there to speak on the family's behalf. It's always better when the family's able to talk and share and, and memorialize their, their own loved ones because they have the memories I don't. But not everybody is always equipped for that or ready for that. Um, and so, uh, you know, in... Um, so my job sometimes will just be to speak for the family. So I'll say, oh, you know, I was talking and uh, her sister Susan said this. Her, her, her brother Joe shared this memory or whatever. It just allows for a personal touch. So with that as an understanding, I go, it, it, you know, early in my ministry, I go to this, guy, this guy's house. He, his mom has passed away. And they want to do this, this memorial service. And so I'm saying, okay, tell me about your mom. It was like crickets. I mean, I'm just trying, well, tell me, you know, tell me about her. Tell me a little bit of it. Well, it turns out, there, I got no material to work with on this gal. I mean, here's a gal, she died, you know, and she's in her 70s, maybe even in her 80s. But, but her entire life consisted of watching television and going shopping. She was largely an absentee mom, an absentee grandma. She, she just, I mean, she didn't, she didn't do anything. Um, she, she didn't believe in the Lord. Uh, I mean, I couldn't even, as a consolation, talk about the hope of heaven, you know, in her funeral service. So it was the most depressing funeral that I've ever done in my entire life. You know, I try, I'm, I'm trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat as I'm kind of speaking. Nobody wanted to speak at this woman's memorial service. It was, it was, it was a train wreck. It was so sad. Six people showed up at her funeral. And, uh, and I just broke my heart. I, I mean, I, all these years in ministry, I've always remembered that. Now, curiously, the, the same year, I had a brother in the church who passed away, and I also officiated his memorial service. This guy was, you know, his name was Bill, and he loved the Lord. He was, you know, just a, a dedicated follower of the Lord. He, he was an army veteran, served in Vietnam, uh, served in the police department, uh, he was, he served as a Boy Scout troop leader, he discipled men, uh, he served in several of our ministries in the church. This was a guy who was characterized by living a life of faith and walking with the Lord and, and honoring the Lord, and um, he led many people to the Lord. I, and I remember, you know, the, the, the um, <laughs> this has nothing to do with my point, but a fond memory I have about him was that uh, I, I saw him, I was at church, and he was outside walking by, and the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment, and because I was thinking in my mind just what a great guy he was, and how I admired him, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you need to go tell him, because he's not going to be here very much longer. And there was nothing going on in his life at that time, I had no way of knowing this, it was totally a supernatural thing of God, and so in that moment, I was obedient, I ran outside, went out the door, you know, stopped him, hey, Bill... Look, I just, this was on my heart, and the Lord told me to share it with you. I just wanted to share it with you. And I was so grateful I did because he died two weeks later. And it was just one of those times I was like, thank you, Lord, that I got to say to him what, what I need to say. Not, not a part of, of my point here, but your life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to him. And what I'm, my point is there was a vast dip, difference between these two people and the way they lived their life. 
An ocean of difference. One spent her life wrapped up in herself, sitting around, and she died a very lonely and empty death with nothing to show for it. But the other spent his life on a radical venture of faith with God, surrounded by friends, full of life, full of joy. And at his funeral, and hundreds of people show up to his funeral. And my question for you is, what are you doing with your life? Because you're either going to be somebody who sits around, and leaves no legacy whatsoever. Or, or you're going to be somebody who, who lives a life that's characterized by venturing out in faith. And so what are you doing with your life? This is one of those takeaways. You just jot this down. Just take a walk with it this week. Are you living a venture of faith with God? Are you, are you all available to Him to, to, to walk obediently with Him? Now, this is an important question. It's an important question for us to consider because... Saul, here in our text, he's content to live in subjugation. He's content to live in a situation, in a circumstance that is not what God called him. God didn't say, hey, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to make you the king to preside over a nation that's subjugated by your enemies. I mean, that, that's, that's not what, what God wanted for his people. But that's the life that Saul was content to live. And a lot of people live their lives that way. They're just content to live a life that's safe, that's rooted. Well, you know what? Let's. I don't want to go on a venture of faith because you know it's it's not necessarily safe. It's scary to to step out. Mark chapter eight verse thirty five. Jesus said, "Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it." And a lot of times when it comes to venturing out in faith, we're afraid to do that because we think, oh, if I go out, if I step out, if I, if I do this thing, I'm going to lose my life. What Jesus is saying is, look, if, 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 you, if you live that way, you've already lost your life. If you're going to live your life afraid of your own shadow, afraid to step out and follow me and the things that I would tell you to do, the Lord would say, you, you've already lost your life. But if you had the attitude and the idea that says, look, you know what, for the Lord's sake, I'll lay down my life, I'll venture out, I'll, I'll lose my life for you, Lord. And so the first point, look, you've got to decide, are you going to be a person that sits around or are you going to be a person who's going to venture out in faith? Now, the remaining points have to do with, okay, if you're going to venture out, here's the deal Here's the, the points of that. My second point, ventures of faith often require hard and sometimes risky work. This is why sometimes we struggle at doing this. Ventures of faith often require hard and sometimes risky work. You look at verse 4 there, and we read there that between the passes, Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison. There's a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. So get the picture Jonathan and his shield bearer are on one side, and in order to go and fight the enemy, they have to go traverse, get down a sharp cliff, and then they have to make their way and climb up the other side, and they got to do this just to fight. And so there's a, there's a danger there, there's an inconvenience there. A missionary society wrote to David Livingston and they asked, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know so that we can send other men to join you. And David Livingston's famous response was, look, if you have men who will come only if there's a good road, I don't want them. He said, I want the men who will come even if there's no road at all. And that's what God's looking for. A lot of people, see, we, we got to understand, man, American Christianity especially, church... We need to understand what it is and what it isn't. And so often what happens is people, they come to church and the attitude is, is entertain me. The attitude is, you know, a consumer mindset that says, well, let me see how the children's ministry is and let me see how the worship ministry is and let me see how the preaching is. And, and, the, and these things are important, but that is not, that's not the church. The church is a, a group of men and women who decide we are going to love the Lord, we're going to know the Lord, we're going to follow the Lord, and we're going to serve the Lord. And we're going to band together to sharpen one another and to encourage one another and to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it's not a matter of saying, you know what, I'm leaving my church because, eh, you know what, the pastor, he's just, he just doesn't do it for me. I'm leaving my church because, you know, the, the worship, I just don't like the worship. 
or whatever it is. Guys, that's not church, man. Church is a body of believers getting together to say, you know what, we're on mission with God. That's, that's the idea. And so, so uh, uh, when you talk about sacrifice and putting yourself out there in a, in a risky kind of way, you know, I'll talk to people about, hey, you know, you want to go out street witnessing, and people go, oh, it sounds great. For some, it doesn't even sound great. It's like, no. I, I think I'd rather have root canal, some people would say, you know. But, but man, you know, this is the life that we're called to, to live. And so it often requires hard, hard work, often requires us taking risk. Speaking to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation, Jesus said this. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, how do you suppose, suppose that, a, that, a, that a church has a reputation of being alive, but really inwardly is dead? Well, as, as you contemplate that, just knowing Sardis and the history of Sardis, it gives us a great picture of what happens. Historians talk about Sardis, and they basically, well, here's a description. It's mostly uh, just a quote that I'll be sharing. Um, But basically, historians say this of Sardis. The people of Sardis had a reputation for being undisciplined and lazy. They were preoccupied with comfort and were generally an apathetic bunch. Uh, This lack of discipline and dedication was the doom of Sardis on a few different occasions. The Greek historian Herodotus tells the story of the fall of Sardis in the days of King Cyrus. King Cyrus came to Sardis and he found the position of the city ideally suited for defense. There seemed to be no way to scale the the steep cliff walls that surrounded the city. And so what Cyrus did is he offered a rich reward for, for any soldier who could figure out a way to get up to the city, to attack the city. So one soldier, he studied the problem very carefully, and as he looked, what he saw was one of the soldiers that was defending Sardis dropped his helmet over the edge, and it fell down the cliff. And so this this soldier of King Cyrus, he watched that soldier, and he watched him go to retrieve his helmet, and he watched him take this, this secret pathway down from the hilltop fortress, and so he saw where it was, took note of it, they got a group of attackers. That night, their forces went up this secret pathway, got into uh, the, the city walls, and they found the gates unguarded. Why? Well, because the people just sort of trusted in the fact, well, nobody can get us. We're up here, we're tough, we're defended, you know? And, and they were, they'd actually become complacent and lazy. And uh, which, you know, Great metaphorical picture for a lot of times we get that way. You know, the gates of our lives just aren't guarded. We just sort of, you know, lose sight of the fact that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he's going to devour. And a lot of times he just finds the gates of our lives completely unguarded. So they don't feel any need to keep a diligent watch and the city was easily conquered. And curiously, the same thing happened almost 200 years later when Antiochus also attacked and conquered the overconfident city because they too didn't set a watch at the gate. Now, here's the deal. The church of Sardis died because they became lazy. They became complacent. And so, you know, that's true for Saul here in our text. And it's true how often for us as well. that We're just sitting around. But see, when we're actively engaged in a venture of faith with God... We're going to overcome temptations of our flesh to be selfish and self-centered. We're going to uh, overcome the opposition of the world and our flesh. And, you know, because the world doesn't want us to be on a venture of faith. Our flesh doesn't want us to be on a venture of faith. Uh, certainly, you know, the enemy doesn't want us to be uh, on a venture of faith. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we have to understand, look, I'm, I'm either going to be, I'm going to be, engage in a venture of faith or I'm going to be sitting around and I got to understand that my tendency is not to want to engage in things that are hard work or risky. But yet, that's what a venture of faith is by definition. God's going to call you to something that, that is, is not according to what you can see or what you can pencil out. 
God's ways aren't man's ways. You know, man's, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We're going to see that in a few chapters here when, when God sends Samuel to go, you know, pick David as the next king of Israel. He's going to look at, at, at Eliab, David's brother. He's going to be like, oh, here's the dude. God's like, no, it's not him. Why? Because God's ways aren't man's ways. And so actively engaging in a venture of faith with God is an essential discipline of Christianity. The third lesson I, I want you to see here in our text uh, of faith, you know, and, and putting faith into practice is that, um, well, we see it through the relation of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Uh, chapter 14, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, uh, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan got it. And look, it's not about us being overwhelmed. It's not about us being outgunned. It's not about any of that. If God wants us to do this, then, then let's do it. So his armor bearer, verse 7, said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go them, here I am with you according to your heart. And then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Now that, I'm not a military guy, but that doesn't seem like a great strategy to me. I mean, our military is, you know, they go at night. We have optical devices that allow us to see the enemy at night, just as clear as day. Um, you know, we have stealth fighters that, you know, you can't see. It's, it's secrecy. It's getting in there quick and lightning fast and so on. So this is the antithesis of, of, of you know, p- military planning. And yet this is how the Lord is leading Jonathan. Now, my third point, successful ventures of faith depend on faithful leaders and faithful followers. They depend on faithful leaders and faithful followers. Please note how Jonathan exercises his faith. What I want you to see here very clearly, he's confident in God's calling, first thing. He has an absolute confidence in God. It's nothing. God can save us by many or by few. Confidence is contagious. And it's not, it's not a misplaced confidence. If you, you might place your confidence in your flesh, you know, you might, might be, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Samson, who, who, you know, all, he, he, he is flirting around with sin and all, and God's given this great power, and then one day, he didn't know, God took his spirit away from him, and he thinks, well, I'm just going to go up and do what I've always done, and the guys over, overwhelm him, and then he's in a place where, they tie him up and they gouge out his eyes because he didn't know the Spirit of God had left him. Well, sometimes people just operate in the strength of the flesh and they just think, oh, my flesh will carry the day, and it doesn't. So he was absolutely, he wasn't confident in his own flesh, in his own abilities, he was confident in the Lord's calling. Secondly, Jonathan was clear in articulating his vision. This is important because what I want you to do, what I want you to see here is Jonathan's being a leader on a venture of faith. And, and all of us exercise leadership in some capacity. And so what we see in Jonathan, not only is he confident in God's calling, he's clear in articulating his vision. Look, here's the vision that I've got. And, and God's laid this on my heart, and it's nothing for God to do this. We can do this. And, and thirdly, he's concise in his, in his instructions. He said, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up. We're going to show ourselves to them. And, and if they say this, we'll go. If they, if they say this, we won't go kind of thing. This is what we're going to do. So he's very concise in, in, in his instructions. Um, we're going to actually read that in, in just a minute. And uh, the result was that Jonathan's armor bearer was equipped to exercise his faith. Because he, in turn, was confident in God's calling through Jonathan. He understood the vision of the Lord clearly, again, because Jonathan articulated the vision of the Lord clearly, and he was able to follow Jonathan because he received those concise instructions uh, from Jonathan. Here's my point. John Maxwell said, he who thinks he leads and has no followers is only taking a walk. And, and for some of us in leadership positions, you might be getting frustrated because you're like, and I hear this from husbands all the time, she won't submit to me. She won't let me lead her. And so often, what I can just tell you is that it comes back to you being a poor leader. 
That, that if you were a little bit more confident in God's calling in your life, a little more clear in articulating the vision that God has given to you, and, and a little more concise in your instructions and saying, look, this is how God has spoken to me and what God is calling me to do, you might find that your wife would then follow. But a lot of times, you know, the men are, are poor leaders <coughs> and, um, and experience problems in that way. And, and so, again, successful venture of faith that depends on both faithful leaders and faithful followers. And that's what, what I want you to understand. This is true in your marriage. This is true in, in every aspect that you're going to do. So, so uh, just, just focus on your marriage. You know, if, if you're going to follow after the Lord, you're going to serve the Lord. You want to make sure that, hey, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm being a, a, a faithful leader. And, and you wives, hey, are you being a faithful follower? Just taking a, a, a walk with that. Um, success in every venture of faith depends on both faithful leaders and faithful followers, faithful armor bearers. Well, really quickly, the fourth lesson I want you to see in faith in our text, uh, we see it through the relationship of Jonathan uh, and God. Um, We see that true ventures of faith are yielded to God's sovereign will. Verse 9, Jonathan says this to his armor bearer, If they say to us, wait until we come to you, Then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand. And this will be a sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they uh, have hidden and so, so this is, you know, them saying, oh, wow, look, uh, all those guys, they dissipated. Now these chickens are, are starting to come out. So again, not exactly the, the highlight of military strategy, but what's happening here is that Jonathan is being completely yielded to the will of God. Jonathan is saying, look, I feel like this is the way God might be leading me, but I'm admitting up front that, you know, I could be wrong. And so what I'm doing is I'm putting myself in a place where I'm yielded to the will of God. We'll reveal ourselves to them, and then we're going to see how they react. That will show me which way, you know, the, the, the Lord uh, is, is here leading. leading. He's, he's allowing God to confirm. And I'll put this in, in a perspective in, in, in just our situations. Recently for Brenda and I, we were making a very difficult financial decision. And we were deciding, you know, gosh, we're not getting any younger and now we got to start thinking about, you know, retirement. I don't, I don't plan on retiring. I want to be like Chuck Smith and drop dead three days before my next message. And that would be great. Just die in the pulpit. But, um, but you know, we got to start think, making these decisions. So we're looking and we look at our situation with our house. And we're like, okay, we bought the house when all our kids were home. Now all our kids are gone. And so I got this big house and big electric payments and, and all. And this is like, we love our house. We really, I mean, it's... But it's just a house. And, and so even though this is, the, I mean, this is like our dream house and, and all, we're like, you know, responsibly, we feel like the Lord's telling us we should sell and that we should downsize and, and we should be a little bit more stewardship-minded with our money. So we started doing that. And, 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 but we didn't know. God, we don't want to make a mistake, but we want to honor you is, is what the cry of our heart was. So we just put it out to the Lord. We said, look, we're going to list it. And Lord, if you want us to sell it, we'll sell it. If you don't, we'll, we'll gladly stay here. And it was so, the key to it was being in a place where we got in our hearts to just say, <clears throat> I just want what you want, God. Really, I just want what you, what you want. And, uh, and so everybody's telling us, look, you, you will not sell that, that house. There is, there is no way. You, you owe too much. on. And it's so sad because I sold my other house at the absolute height of the market. I got a, I got a stupid amount for my last house. So I put a ton of money down on this house. I mean, well over six figures, down on, you know, it's six figures, whatever, on this house, and it's all gone, you know? So now I got my beautiful house, but I can't, you know, I can't get out from under it kind of thing. I'm like, look, I want to honor the Lord, and he's providing for me to stay here, and I like the place, but maybe I should sell the place. So everybody's like, you're not going to sell it. You'll never praise for what you need to praise for. My wife's like, hey, you know what? Our God parted the Red Sea. So if he wants us to sell it... (laughs) It's nothing, you know. And uh, well, to make a long story short, basically, God provided all the way. Now, had we stayed there, we, honestly, I would have been happy because, because I love the place. 
But you know what? Lord, we want to be good stewards. At the end of the day, God sold the house. We moved. Okay, that's what you do. And, and again, it's a matter of just saying, God, what I want is your will. And I want, to, I want to have you confirm it. And so I'm going to take this venture of faith, but I'm not going to do it stupidly. I'm going to take a venture of faith that, that seeks to, to be yielded to your sovereign will. When, when the hand of God is in the glove of human events, that's what I want, Lord, for my life. Fifth thing here to see real quick is that ventures of faith are one when we trust and obey. They're one when we trust and obey. So both of them... Jonathan and his armor bearer. They showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes that they've hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. And that's the key. Jonathan's like, If that's what they say, then we'll know that this is the Lord's will. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Um, and Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. Remember them, they, they had to scale down a cliff, run across a valley, scale up another cliff just to get to the fight. And so he's scampering up on his hands and knees. His armor bearer's right on his six, right behind him. And, um, and as his armor bearer come up, Jonathan knocked him down, his armor bearer killed them. Verse 14, <clears throat> the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within half an acre of land. Two things to see there. They're bad dudes, and they're, they're more incredibly bad dudes because God has called them to do this. Listen, ventures of faith are run when we, when we trust and obey. Listen, talking about going on a venture of faith and actually living out a venture of faith are two completely different things. We can talk about, oh yeah, I'm going to trust the Lord, but then you actually have to do it. I remember, you know, in the summer of 91, Brenda and I just coming into a faith in the Lord, and God was calling us in our venture of faith to, to walk away from the friends that we had in the neighborhood, because the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. These aren't good friendships for us. We need to separate ourselves from these friendships. We need to make new friendships. And that was difficult, because, you know, your comfort zone is in, you know, the friends that, that you've had. And it became even more difficult because then these friends that we had in the world, they became so angry with us that now they began to mock us and make fun of us and vilify us. It was a very difficult time for us. But we had to trust and obey the Lord. Hey, this is what the Lord has called us to do. It's been said, listen, what God calls you to, He will bring you through. To, to, to say it scripturally, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. And so ventures of faith are one when we will trust and obey God. My question for you is, what's God calling you to do? What, it, what is it in your life today has God called you to do? And you're saying, oh gosh, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do that. See, for Jonathan, hey, look, what I want you to do, go reveal yourself to the enemy. The absolute opposite thing that you should do. And, and Jonathan's like, well, okay, I'm going to trust and obey God. And when he does, and he follows through obediently, God shows up in, in, a, in a huge way. Well, my sixth and final point is that ventures of faith are contagious. Look at verse 16. It says, Now when the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and, and they went here and there, and then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. Somebody's up there fighting those guys. Who is it? Uh, and when they had called the roll, surprisingly, <coughs> Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. In other words, Saul is like, well, well they, let, me, <coughs> let me pray and see if this is something that we ought to be involved in. He's still won't do anything. We'll bring the ark of God here. Now let me, let me, let's pray. And now it happened, verse 19, while Saul was talk, talk to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And so Saul said to the priest, the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, 
And don't take this the wrong way, but Saul is saying this. He's saying, oh, hey, bring the ark of the Lord here. Let's pray and see if we should be about this thing. And then all of a sudden, it just becomes absolutely clear. God's doing an incredible work. And Saul's like, never mind. Let's just get in with the battle here. And, some, and, and, and this is the part I don't want you to take the wrong way, but there's a time to pray and there's a time to get busy following and, and obeying God. This is the time where God's clearly at work and, it's, and it's, you've sat around long enough. And some people, they'll talk and they'll, they'll spiritualize things to death. I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. Okay, you know what? At some point, if, 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 if you start, you just might finish, okay? So there's a point in our lives where it's like, you know, get busy already. There's a point where you got to be in moving. you gotta, you got to have some action here. And so he says, withdraw your hand. Then, verse 20, Saul and all the people who were with him assembled... And they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. In other words, what happens, God caused confusion amongst the enemy, and the enemy's killing each other. They're doing the job. They're wielding their swords, killing all, lots of friendly fire going on. Verse 24, moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines, and so evidently there were some of their members that had gone and kind of mingled with the Philistines, you know, covertly pretending, you know, to be Philistines, but they're they're secretly Hebrews. Um, Before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they heard the, what the Philistines had fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. And so, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to, ben, to Beth-Avon. Last point is that ventures of faith are contagious. When, when we started our first church, we had people that mocked it all day long. What are you doing? Oh, you know what? There shouldn't be a church there. Why are you planting a church there? Whatever. And so not, not everybody wanted to get on the bandwagon. Can I tell you when there were thousands of people going there, everybody wanted on that bandwagon. You know, when the days of small things, nobody wanted to be a part of it. But as soon as God was moving and working and they could see tangibly all the stuff, now everybody, even former people who had come and mocked, now they're saying, oh, hey, you need a worship leader? <laughs> I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, we do, you know? Where were you in the days of small things, man? But, but when, you, when, when you're following after the Lord, it's contagious. And here's what that means for you, and just kind of the takeaway I want to finish on. I want you to think of a time in your life, maybe when you're following after the Lord. Maybe the guys at work, they, they're, they're wanting you to go, hey, let's go party, let's go to happy hour after work. And now you're growing in the Lord. Maybe you used to always party with those people, and now you're in the place where you're saying, you know what, I just don't have the peace of God to do that. And then maybe to your shock, you saw that a few other guys started going, you know what, I'm not going to do that either. Because your venture of faith has now become contagious, and people start to see what's happening in your life, and, 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 and they're, they're inspired by it. And I know for me, just, just recently, a couple of years ago, Brennan and I went to uh, a financial, or to a, um, to, to a pastor's conference, and in the midst of the pastor's conference, one of the guys was talking about financial issues. And, uh, and it happened to be Rick Warren, and I'm not saying anything about his theology or anything like this, I'm just telling you what he said and how it impacted me. Um, he was talking about how all the proceeds that he'd made from his book, The Purpose Driven Life. It's the, it's the highest grossing book of all time, second only to the Bible. And he's given 99% of the proceeds away. And he says, well, you know, when people, people, even that, they go, oh, well, if I made that much money, I'd give it away too. He goes, no, you wouldn't. If your life wasn't typified by being generous with your money beforehand, you wouldn't be generous with your money after the fact. He goes, I'm, confident, I'm, I'm firmly confident that the reason God gave me that book is because he knew what I'd do with the money. And then he said, what would you do with the money? And he just went on to talk about how the Lord moved in his life early on with his wife, that they just made the decision, we're going to be faithful with our money. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to give to the Lord generously. And uh, people were shocked at, at just, you know, to, to come and see what would happen in their life because they, they start off, we're going to give 10%. Next year we're going to give 11%. Next year we're going to give 12%. Next year we're going to give, we just want to be generous and just give to just be generous with God and trust God. 
And so by the time he wrote the book, they were already giving more than half of their income away. The majority of their income, they were already giving it all away. And God was providing for them. And I came, I'm just telling you what happened in my heart. I heard this man's faith and it was contagious. And what it did in my heart is it said, I want to get to the place where I can be as generous as I can with my money. And it radically changed our lives. I went home and I told my wife, we're changing the way that we live right now. Because his faith has inspired me. And I want to live like that. My point for you is that if you will live a life on mission with God, and if you will take a radical venture of faith with God, you have no idea who you're going to inspire and the lives that are going to be changed. There's testimonies all that abound. People in the life of drugs, alcohol, coming out of it because they were inspired by somebody else's faith. My prayer for you is that you will be those that live lives just purposely on mission with God that you'll live a life of faith obedient with him and that others will catch your faith and you'll spur one another on towards love and good deeds.